Hi there, and welcome to Axel Bank Reports History and Today. Conversations with America's top nonfiction authors and why their books matter right now. I'm Evan Axelbank, and today we're going to speak with Dr. Eric Rauschway, the author of Winter War, Hoover, Roosevelt, and the First Clash Over the New Deal. This is his sixth book. He's a professor of history at the University of California, Davis. Thanks so much for being here, Dr. Rauschway. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Before we start our interview, I do want to invite listeners to our Patreon page to ask for your support in keeping the show going. Go to patreon.com slash History. We're going to donate part of your contributions to a charity for children's literacy. When it comes to the presidency, the last hundred years are filled with turning points. Trump to Biden, Obama to Trump, Gore to Bush, Carter to Reagan. Did I say Gore to Bush? Yeah. <laughs> Wrong. <laughs> Well, that, was, that would have been a different episode, yeah. Uh, that would have been a different episode. Uh, uh, I'll just pick it up. Clinton to Bush, Carter to Reagan, Eisenhower to Kennedy. But who could say that any of those were bigger changes in direction than Hoover to FDR? The Great Depression was overwhelming. Hoover was not intervening. Misery was everywhere. And FDR pledges to not only intervene, but he winds up reshaping the government role in our lives for 90 years and counting. Dr. Rauschway's book describes that transition. First, Dr. Rauschway, where was America on Tuesday, November 8th, 1932, the election day where FDR scores 472 electoral votes to Hoover's 59? Well, you're right to say that this was the absolute depth of the Great Depression, and this is a we may be thankful that this is a unique uh, economic catastrophe in the nation's history that for essentially four solid years, the economy had been getting worse since sometime late in the summer of 1929. Unemployment had been rising almost steadily till it got to near 25%. We don't have perfect figures, but that's the best estimate that we have. So roughly one in four American workers was unemployed, which meant that broadly speaking, one in four Americans was without uh, a means of feeding their families because this had gone on for so long that people's savings had been spent down, local charities had been tapped out, local churches had been tapped out, counties and states, uh, their relief funds had been tapped out and people were literally starving in the United States. So with that kind of uh, economic catastrophe underway, it's not surprising, as you say, that Roosevelt should have won over the incumbent, whose campaign essentially pledged to do more of the same. Uh, so people decided they would rather have a change and put Roosevelt in the White House instead. Although, again, as you've also suggested, it would be a long time, not until March 4th, 1933, that Roosevelt would be able to take the oath of office. One of the fascinating questions your book raises is whether Roosevelt delivered what he promised or hid what he planned. You say somehow historians have forgotten what Hoover and other people alive in 1933 knew, almost open almost any account of this critical moment in human history, you say, and you're likely to find a description of Roosevelt's campaign as so devoid of substance and full of sunny generalities that his plans remained largely unknown to the public. So clear that up. Did he have a philosophy or grand design when he took office? Obviously, it depends on what your threshold is for calling something a philosophy or a grand design. <laughs> I, think, I think it's definitely true that we've gone way too far in the other direction of saying that he was, as you say, very vague. That's not true. That's a... Um, that's a sort of a myth that was promulgated by conservative Democrats and Republicans after the New Deal had been launched specifically for the 1936 campaign to try to argue that Roosevelt had, um, you know, sort of pulled a bait and switch, that he had run as a conservative and then presided as a radical. Um, if you look at 1932, 1933, that's absolutely untrue, right? And, and the same kinds of people were recognizing that the New Deal was radical when it was proposed and when it began to be implemented. So if we could dig a little bit into this, I mean, you know, the, um, the Republican Party that we know today, which, with, which talks very much about deregulation, about putting business back in the saddle, about speaking of Amer the engines of American prosperity as being private wealth, that's really a creation of the post-World War I era. 
right? That's, um, that's Coolidge's Republican Party, you know, for lack of a, to, to put a generalization on it. And Herbert Hoover was very much a figure of Coolidge's Republican Party, right? He had been Secretary of Commerce under um, Harding and remained so under Coolidge. He fought in that decade against the extension of publicly funded power projects, you know, which were sort of the hallmark of the other side of the coin, the progressive faction of the Republican and of the Democratic Party. So Hoover was throughout the 20s on the conservative side, and he ran against people who were progressives, including in 1928, Al Smith, the then governor of New York, who ran as a progressive against uh, Hoover, which is to say in favor of an expanded public sphere. And this is even before, you know, the Depression. So when the Depression came, you know, Hoover's uh, traditional Republican philosophy that the market, that business managers, that the owners of private capital are best equipped to deal with the complexity of the American economy was challenged. And Hoover stuck up for that philosophy for, again, four long years of plummeting commodity prices and rising unemployment, insisting that prosperity was always just around the corner. In 1932, then, it was obvious for any Democrat who got the nomination that they should run against right, that program of putting uh, uh, faith in the private side of the economy. And that's what Roosevelt did. I mean, don't forget, Roosevelt by now had been governor of New York State. As governor of New York State, he had established the first substantial public works programs specifically to hire people in the teeth of the depression. He had stood for workers' rights. He had been on the side of increasing the public presence in the electricity markets. In other words, he had run, he had presided as governor, right, over a miniature New Deal in New York State. So again, nobody should be shocked that when he ran for president in 1932, that's what he promised. What did he promise? A massive federal public works program to combat unemployment and to create a long-term plan for ensuring that cyclical unemployment was met. Massive expansion of federal funded public power utilities what would become the Tennessee Valley Authority and similar projects elsewhere, like in the Columbia River Valley, for example, premising on the basis of, of the success of Wilson Dam and Hoover Dam, right? So publicly owned power, increased regulation of the financial sector, right? Cracking down on the banks and on the speculators who, in the view of pretty much everybody then and now, you know, had helped to create the conditions that caused the Wall Street crash of 1929 and lost an awful lot of people their money, you know, promoting um, an expanded uh, presence of the federal government in the agricultural sector, you know, trying to consolidate resources where they were profitable and propping up the prices of uh, agricultural goods. Basically, in fact, everything we think of when we think about the New Deal, he promised in 1932, including old age pensions that are self-funded and, as I say, pretty much everything we can think of. So, and, and Hoover ran against that, you know, in 1932. He called it socialist. He called it, you know, smelling like uh, uh, communism. He said, uh, I smell the same fumes wafting off the New Deal as lately boiled over in the cauldron in Moscow or words to that effect, right? He was very clear about this. And it was, so, as Hoover again said, an ideological contest. So how uh, did FDR make these promises? Take us inside the campaign just a little bit. Is it what we would be familiar with today where he's giving stump speeches across the country on a different topic? Uh, every day. Um, it seems that he made quite an impression on Herbert Hoover because Hoover during the campaign um, essentially said, I can see what's coming down the pipe here. He said, there is reason to uh, believe that when FDR and his presidency begins, he's going to fulfill the pledges that he's made to the American people. Right. Well, you have to remember in those... Uh Edenic days, the presidential campaign was much shorter than it is today. Yeah, it's like two uh, years. Know, yeah, right. Exactly. I mean, you know, Roosevelt um, sort of, you know, began promoting himself seriously as a candidate early in 1932. Began talking about what uh, an agenda might look like in the sort of April-May time frame. It wasn't really till after the Democratic convention, you know, and the Republican convention. So we're not really talking until June, July, that things start to get serious, right? So in um, Beginning late in the spring and coming into the convention, Roosevelt assembled the people who became known as the Brains Trust, you know, a group of 
academics and other thinkers who helped to break down the policy agenda into various areas. And, you know, to us today, this might seem very ordinary. You know, we expect to go to a candidate's website and see, oh, climate policy, healthcare policy. But yeah, this is a so I, I was going to ask because um, nowadays you do see, okay, we're going to talk about the economy. This is my prescription for that. This is my prescription for, uh, I don't know, the post office. This is my prescription for climate change. Did FDR campaign on the, as these things as being critical to have all together or was he willing to accept a piecemeal? I know this is a kind of a 1B question here based on what the first one was, but, but did he see that these all had to be done together for them to work or was he willing to separate them out and take what he could get? Well, philosophically speaking, he demanded that they happen together, right? I mean, it was a keystone of the campaign uh, that the American economy, the sectors of the American economy were interdependent. And that proved to be a useful uh, idea later when he began to say that the United States economy was interdependent with that of the rest of the world, right? Um, so, you know, his, his, his premise was we couldn't revive the industrial sector unless we also revive the agricultural sector, right? We couldn't revive the South unless we also revive the Northeast at the same time, that we need to push forward on all fronts. Now, as I say, that's philosophically speaking, that's the idea. You know, um, practically speaking, of course, Roosevelt had to work with Congress and Congress had its own priorities. And not only that, of course, in the event, the administration was overtaken by events. Remember, they had to prioritize uh, resuscitating the banking system, which wasn't going to be their first priority until the, uh, the banking system began to fall apart, you know, in the months uh, really from about October 1932 until March 1933. So, you know, Philosophically, they wanted to press forward on all fronts at the same time, but practically they worked with what they had. Roosevelt was conscious of that, uh, you know, sort of tension, if you like. He, he, he likes to describe himself as a, as a football quarterback, right? You know, he would say, well, I know what I'm going to do on the next play. But what I'm going to do on the play after that really depends on how this one goes, you know. So, uh, you know, he knew where he wanted to go. He knew what the rules were for how you could get there but he also was driven by events. As Hoover becomes a lame duck, he loses this crushing electoral college uh, defeat. Um, he does not do what other presidents have done, like, for instance, George W. Bush, who did his best to give Barack Obama a clean slate and was on the record in several ways as saying, I want my successor to come in with um, the best possible situation. Um, he does not, Hoover does not come to grip with the fact that America has chosen a new direction. This was, as you say, a winter war. So as Hoover becomes a lame duck, explain how he girds himself for this next battle, which is now going to go from early November to early March, even longer than our transitions of today. Yeah, this is the last time there is this long transition. It's worth pointing out, but, uh, you know, uh, Congress had already ratified the 20th Amendment that was shortened the transition earlier in 1932, and it was finally adopted by the states uh, during this uh, this lame duck period. So um, that that this is the last time that happens. Um, and FDR had if if FDR had been a one-term president, he would have served a uniquely shortened term, for what that's worth, um, from March you know 4th 1933 to January 20th 1937. Um, yeah, Hoover, as incumbent presidents sometimes do, uh, had persuaded himself that he was going to win this election. He believed, really, that no thinking person could vote against him, that he had such a good record um, in his entire career, and that he had hewed to what responsible people viewed was the correct policy during the Depression, and that, therefore, he would have to win that recovery was visible and people just needed to trust him. And uh, it wasn't until late in the day on election day that he really sort of came to grips with the idea that he was going to lose and not only lose, but lose big, uh, as, as you say, you know, winning, winning only half a dozen states. And um, he really believed that the American people had suffered a fit of irrationality and that they would come very swiftly to regret what they had done 
And not only that, that the New Deal would so spectacularly fail that they would clamor for his return to the White House. So he regarded the period immediately after the election as the period when he would have to set himself up as somebody who was willing to return and somebody who was the future leader of the Republican Party. Not only that, he believed so firmly that the New Deal must be a catastrophe that he really tried to prevent Roosevelt and the Democrats from being able to enact it, both in the immediate term, because of course Congress was in session during Hoover's lame duck months. Congress tried to pass uh, New Deal style legislation. Uh, Hoover you know, campaigned against it and let it be known he would veto it if it did pass. So he prevented, you know, for example, a farm relief bill from passing the Congress uh, in 1932-33. He stood against that kind of legislation. And not only that, he tried to pressure Roosevelt in ways both uh, private and public to abandon uh, the promises he had made for a new deal. Between most administrations, there's often a meeting between the outgoing and incoming president. And there is a meeting, there are several meetings um, between Hoover and FDR. Um, Hoover insists that FDR bring people with him, um, that he won't meet with FDR alone in the White House. Why did he insist that? Um, Hoover was very suspicious of Roosevelt personally. He believed uh, that Roosevelt was not going to be honest about what was said at such a meeting. In fact, Hoover insisted that uh, when he spoke to Roosevelt over the phone, that there had to be a stenographer, you know, uh, secretly recording what they'd said so that Roosevelt couldn't make promises and then go back on them. He really, which, you know, aside from being suspicious, this suggests that Hoover really expected to be able to get Roosevelt to make promises, which is interesting in itself, right? I think that, uh, you know, that, that, that kind of tells you what Hoover's agenda was, right? Um, and, and he really expected to be able to box Roosevelt in, partly, again, because he thought he was just factually correct. Hoover did. And he so, would, Hoover, so, so his goal was to get it, to box him in on, the, uh, on promising to not go too far, let's just say, to the left, and follow right. what Hoover wanted him to do. Yeah, well, if you want to break it down, there's kind of two phases, right? Um, the first phase from roughly in the last couple of months of 1932, Hoover is trying to demonstrate to Roosevelt that the New Deal is a terrible idea, that Hoover is really the expert his administration has pr been pursuing on the only sound policy, and that really what Roosevelt should do is let Hoover appoint commissions to resolve various financial and economic matters that would then serve during Roosevelt's term and continue to, you know, to, to, to set or at least guide policy. Then the second phase in the early part of 33 is when the banking panic is really underway, right? People, I mean, there have been banking panics throughout Hoover's term. This is merely the biggest and latest, right? But, uh, and it begins shortly before uh, the election. You have to remember now, this is before there's any federal deposit insurance. So if your bank shuts its doors, you're without recourse, right? You, you have lost access to your money. In a situation like that, if people start to get panicky, you know, they're likely to go to the bank and take their money out. And then of course it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy because now the bank doesn't have any money, right? So um, there are these waves of banking panics as the economy shaky during the depression. And in 1933, they get really big and bad, so much so that people will take their money out of their bank, and then they will take that paper money to the nearest Federal Reserve branch, and this was a period when the United States was on the gold standard, and they would exchange the paper money for gold, and they would take that home. And so not only did the banks begin to run out of money, the Federal Reserve began to run out of gold. So there's a banking panic, and if you like, there's a currency panic on top of it. So things are really quite catastrophic. Uh, and at this point, oh, go ahead. Yeah, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. No, no, go ahead. Hoover's strategy shifts yeah. to saying, you're at fault for this, Franklin Roosevelt. This, uh, this banking panic is your fault. People are panicky because they fear the New Deal. And therefore, the only way to stop the banking panic is for you to repudiate the New Deal. Um, so that, that's sort of the second phase of Hoover trying to pressure Roosevelt. Um, this is kind of a side question here, but was the goal of Hoover and FDR, what was the goal of, of Hoover hosting FDR at the White House? Is that about showing the American people this continuity of government that people are longing for now? Um, Trump didn't invite Biden, 
but that was the first time in decades, if not, you know, maybe um, in over 150 years since that had happened. Um, what what was, was Hoover's goal to show the American people that we were one government and that, that differences aside, we will persist? Or was there another agenda in mind that Hoover had in mind when he was inviting uh, FDR to the White House? That's a really interesting question. And I, I didn't delve quite as much into this in the book as, as I could have given the research that I had. But I think that Hoover is trying to use this to educate slash pressure Roosevelt. Okay. I think that newspapers, though, took it the way you're describing it. In fact, uh, there are a number of newspapers I came across which mocked up, you know, sort of fake pictures of Hoover and Roosevelt together. There were no actual photographs. Uh, yeah, but there were no pictures, right? Yeah. Right. Well, Hoover, in fact, refused to be photographed with Roosevelt. He thought that was, you know, that was. I, I have a quote I was going to say later in yeah, the episode, okay. so don't spoil it for me. But All go right, ahead. I won't yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Right. But, yeah. but uh, you know, it, on the on the day of the meeting, there are a number of newspapers which run these kind of Photoshop, if you like, uh, uh, fake photos of them together with captions that express hope that, you know, our leadership are unified kind of thing. And, and, and just to put a contemporary-ish gloss on that, you remember how people talked about Bush Obama in the 2008 and nine transition. It was very much the same, right? That these guys are working together on the same front. How uh, does the meeting go and how, and what did they talk about? Um, uh, you mentioned Hoover had goals. Was Hoover successful in this battle of the winter war? Well, no. Uh, Hoover wanted to use this particular meeting, this first meeting, to persuade Roosevelt to accept the idea of a Hoover-appointed commission to resolve the international debt situation. These are debts that are left over from the Great War. You know, because of the Depression, European countries are defaulting on these debt payments. Um, so Hoover brings his Secretary of the Treasury, Ogden Mills, to this meeting, who is not only the Secretary of the Treasury, but is also... Roosevelt's childhood frenemy, you know, who they used to, you know, have fights when they were kids. So this is an odd choice in itself. But, uh, you know, the, um, and Roosevelt, for his part, you know, feels he has to go to the meeting for political reasons, but also wants to avoid any appearance of committing to anything. So he decides not to bring anyone who has any known economic or financial opinions or background. Instead, he picks a political scientist from Columbia University who was his sometime speechwriter, Ray Moley, and brings him with him. And Roosevelt kind of uses the meeting to try to get information from Hoover. In fact, we have Roosevelt's little uh, note cards in, in the archives. They exist still. And Roosevelt sort of held these three by five cards in his hand. And you can, we, some of them have his handwriting on them. We can see what he was keen to figure out was whether Hoover had done anything that would bind his hand. And so Roosevelt wanted a free hand. Hoover wanted to prevent Roosevelt from having a free hand. Uh, by the accounts that we have of the meeting, Hoover spent most of it talking and Roosevelt spent most of it not promising anything. Um, it's not just Hoover fighting this winter war here. We should be fair. FDR was also fighting this thing. Um, the incoming administration begins to draft bills, particularly a farm bill, but others. Um, had this been done before? Was this common at the time where the administration that's incoming is literally saying, this is what we want passed as soon as we walk in there? I, I don't think this was common. I mean, again, this is this is sort of a crisis mentality, right? Because of the, the nature of the, the depression. Um, and, you know, I think that uh, that's the reason for all of this sort of almost war room style planning, right? So Roosevelt had a house in Georgia, uh, Warm Springs, which uh, is still a foundation for, for folks with polio, right? Um, he had this house in Georgia and he went down there in December, 1932 and invited you know, various democratic party figures down to sort of hobnob and confer with him. This was not only part of the, who will be in the cabinet process, but as you say, also part of a, let's try to draft some relief bills to get them through Congress now uh, sort of program. And in December, uh, there was a meeting of all of the heads of the farm associations. And we should point out that, you know, this in this period in American history, roughly 20% of Americans derive their incomes from farming. So it's a much bigger part of the economic sector, a much bigger part of the economy uh, than it is today. So that, that's why it's top of the agenda. 
Um, I have a couple of quotes here, and it's funny to hear them given today's um, the context of today's political disagreement, where we have a president who just called the Senate Majority Leader of his own party um, a dour, unsmiling, whatever he said. Um, uh, here are some quotes, and uh, FDR. I'll just read them. FDR rankled the outgoing administration by saying they are not telling the truth about current conditions and their relation to the future. And Hoover's press secretary responds, doesn't sound that bad, right, to modern ears. Hoover's press secretary responds and says that was the most unsportsmanlike action of any president-elect that he had ever known. Now, he didn't know Donald Trump, and he didn't know Joe (laughs) Biden, and he didn't know many other people from today's day, did he? Uh, no. Well, I, yes, I think that, uh, uh, in those olden times, uh, an accusation, however well-founded of not telling the truth was taken very seriously. Right. I think that, uh, we certainly heard a lot more of it in the past four and five and six years, and maybe we've gotten numb to it, but, um, you didn't call another president a liar basically. Right. Well, you know, it's, it's funny. The, um, this had started, earlier, you know, to take a slight digression, uh, when Roosevelt was governor, his state commissioner of labor was Frances Perkins. She would later be Roosevelt's secretary of labor uh, as president. And Perkins came to national prominence by pointing out that uh, the Hoover administration was faking the unemployment figures, not to put too fine a point on it, to try to make them look better than they actually were. Again, this is an era where they didn't have regular figures the way we do now. Um, and, uh, you know, that, that was already, you know, something that had really been a thorn in the Hoover administration's side. So that something that they were already pretty stung by. And she was right for what it's worth. You know. One thing we need to approach here and talk about is FDR and, um, the calls that were, ex- that did exist then more than exist for social equality for African-Americans. Um, you say that he chose a path FDR did of political expediency. But you also say Herbert Hoover did his best to show blacks that the GOP viewed them with indifference at best. So where was the political home of black Americans during the beginning of the New Deal? Well, the important thing I think here to remember is that the first term that Roosevelt has in office is the time when black Americans become Democratic voters, right? That's when that shift happens. So the question is, as you say, what is the state of play at the start? And was it, what is it that, uh, that changes black Americans' minds? So habitually down to this point, black people, when they could vote, voted for Republicans, generally speaking, not exclusively, obviously. And that's because Republicans were the party of Lincoln and the party of emancipation and, and reconstruction. Um, coming into the 1920s, that began to change, right? Republicans saw no real I mean, I, I, you know, to be honest, it changed in the 1890s, but let's, let's come into the, this closer, closer period. Republicans began to try to be white Southerners to try to get that vote. Uh, they figured that was worth more to them in the Electoral College. Um, Democrats, of course, then were habitually the party of the segregationist South coming into the 1920s. And that was only shifting because African-Americans were shifting which is to say, beginning certainly in the 1890s and accelerating with World War I, black people began moving into northern and western cities, taking jobs in factories. And, you know, these are, these are still racist places, right? But black people can vote in these places. So once there's a substantial black vote in Boston or Philadelphia or New York or Detroit, you know, those are places that Democrats have to win in order to win the presidency. And so the Democratic Party begins shifting towards being accommodating to black voters. I'm, I'm, I'm trying as hard as possible to paint this as a pragmatic decision by the Democratic Party because that's how they saw it, right? So there's no principled revelation that civil rights is the agenda of the future, right? Is we need to win these areas where there are a substantial number of black voters. Um, now, you mentioned I described this as a decision of political expediency. Uh, that's really Roosevelt's own phrasing. Right? I took that out of, a, out of a note that Roosevelt himself wrote. And the calculation goes like this. Roosevelt figures he can win the nomination and the presidency most easily 
by winning the votes of white Southerners who are hit hard by the depression and who habitually vote Democrat. And the thing therefore for him to do is to not alienate them. So the NAACP comes to Roosevelt's campaign and said, why don't you make an express statement saying that black people are included in the new deal? And that's when Roosevelt writes that note that says, as a matter of political expediency, I think it's best not to. And that's not to say they aren't aware of the situation I described to you, where they want to win black votes in the cities. So what they do, rather than have the candidate say anything, is they hire uh, a speaker and maybe a couple speakers to go to those neighborhoods and say, you know, the New Deal will be good for poor people. Black people are overrepresented among poor people. Therefore, the New Deal will be good for black people, right? And to be fair, that turns out to be true, right? Um, especially with the Works Progress Administration, which, you know, the NAACP and the Urban League recognized as being one of the great uh, spurs to opportunity that the Roosevelt administration provided. But, you know, this is still, this is a period of flux. Uh, it's not going to be till Roosevelt's second term that the D Justice Department will really begin to pay attention to voting rights and not till his third term that they'll be successful uh, in that. But this is the period when this shift begins to happen. Does he ever come close to doing some of the things that Harry Truman did, let's say segregating the armed forces or to doing some of the things that uh, John F. Kennedy and Lyndon Johnson wind up doing a voting rights act, um, a, how a fair housing act, things like that? Well, it depends what you mean by things like that. I mean, you know, <laughs> in, in, in 1930, big, 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 right. big, bold letters is what I'm asking. Yeah. Well, I mean, in 1933, um, so at the very beginning of the New Deal, they already have black advisors on the public works programs, economists who are telling them, you know, this is how you need to structure these so that they will be fair to black people. Very early on, they adopt uh, under the, under the uh, influence of Robert Weaver, who would later be um, the first black cabinet secretary. Uh, they adopt a policy of saying, well, if, if black people are proportionally underrepresented on public works, we can take that as you know, de facto evidence of discrimination, and therefore we have to work harder to hire black people in those areas. And Weaver will say this is actually very effective at uh, you know, creating equity on public works. In, 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 in the second term, it'll become illegal to discriminate on the basis of race and public works. Right? So I mean, that's, that's, that's important. And as I say, that's why the NAACP and the Urban League will endorse uh, you know, these programs. As I say, in the second term also, Roosevelt will um, have his Justice Department create a uh, civil rights section, which will begin to bring litigation to try to dismantle the white primary in the South, which will be successful. Um, it's not until the war that you might see anything like what you're describing. And it's then because uh, the civil rights leader and union leader, A. Philip Randolph, will come to the White House, you know, under Eleanor's sponsorship and say to Roosevelt, if you don't do something to desegregate war work or to create racial equity in war work, we'll have a massive protest and a march on Washington. And in response to that, Roosevelt will issue, you know, a fair employment practices order and so to create racial equity in war work. These are all steps, you know. Um, it will be in 1941 that there will be the first case that sort of disestablishes the white primary that really won't have the final blow till 1944. You know, that will pave the way for what you mentioned, uh, uh, Truman's sort of baby step towards uh, civil rights in 1948. And then, you know, Truman will get essentially a brushback pitch from his own party because Strom Thurmond will lead a segregationist uh, splitter faction that almost cost Truman re-election. So the Democratic Party, beginning with Roosevelt, is moving in a direction where the National Party is in favor of civil rights, while the Southern Party remains opposed to it. So there's this conflict within the party, and it's something that the national leaders, the ones you name, Roosevelt, Truman, Kennedy, Johnson, uh, end up trying to manage, and uh, they have to do deplorable things occasionally. Uh, in Roosevelt's case, you know, sort of refusing to respond to requests for anti-lynching legislation, um, and, you know, and, 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 and sort of that sort of thing. But it's a it's a process where they're compromising as well as moving forward. 
on February 15th, things almost change significantly. Mm. Um, and this is still a dream of mine that you come down to Miami to do a story with us on my day job as a news reporter about this incident that happened in Florida and could have been a much bigger, even bigger piece of Florida history than it already is. So hopefully one day you'll be down here. But um, FDR is in Miami with the mayor when someone tries to shoot him. First, describe the assassination attempt. Where were they? Why were they there? And then how narrowly FDR escapes and what impact a successful assassination would have had on the world. I don't think you can overstate the impact this would have had on the world. But go ahead. February 15th, what happened? Right. So February 15th, Roosevelt had been um, taking some time away from the press by going on a cruise with his friend Vincent Astor and some of their fellow rich uh, people on Vincent Astor's yacht, right? And, you know, he was doing this so that he could have some space and time to come up with cabinet choices without being pestered. Uh, and so he returned to the mainland in Miami on uh, February 15th, and he was going to make a brief appearance in Bayfront Park. And um, so there were benches uh, set up that were sort of makeshift with planks uh, placed across folding chairs, you know, so lots of people could sit and see the president-elect. Remember, he's still the president-elect until March 4th, uh, as he makes this brief appearance. Now, one thing we haven't talked about yet that is worth mentioning, right? Remember, Roosevelt was disabled, physically disabled. He um, didn't have the regular use of his legs. So public appearances for him were very tricky and often an endurance uh, test, if nothing else. And so he tried to avoid uh, appearing weak, right, in public or, you know, knowing how people would take it if he had difficulty standing, right? And, you know, obviously he was cognizant of the prejudices of his time, right? So he would like to drive up in a car with the top down, a convertible with the top down, and then not get out of the car, right? Because that would be the, the difficult part for him. So he would hike himself up on the back seat helped to be in warm weather, as, as we often enjoy in Florida, as you know. And uh, he would sort of wave to the crowd and the press could come up to the car and stick their microphones at him and, and, and get his attention and, and aim the cameras at him. And then he could just sort of slide back down on the seat and take off again. So that was the plan for this particular appearance. And he did that. He very briefly said, you know, how glad he was to be welcomed in Miami and see the people of Miami and words to that effect. And now he had to go catch his train uh, to go north again to New York, where he was going to do more wheeling and dealing right? in the last weeks before the inauguration. And just as he was sliding back down, right, somebody in the crowd hiked himself up on one of these sagging, wobbly uh, plank benches, right, and fired a pistol a couple of times uh, in the direction of the president-elect, striking uh, a number of people, including the mayor of, Chica of Chicago, Anton Chermak, uh, ultimately fatally. Roosevelt's folks, uh, you know, bundled Chermak into the car with Roosevelt, which then of course took off to make sure that the president would be safe. And in fact, they grabbed uh, the assailant and they, um, uh, sort of crammed him also onto the back of the car uh, and drove off together. Do you know, there, do we know how close FDR was to being hit by this bullet? Probably three or four or five feet, you know, not, not too far. You know, within, now, that's, not, that's not far enough, I'll tell you that. You know? <laughs> uh, let's, let's, it, was, it was within social distancing guidelines. Uh, I mean, sorry, inside of social distancing guidelines. Right, right. Um, you know? Yeah, well, go ahead, yeah. Yeah. There remain to this day uh, conspiracy theorists who say that really the, the, the assassin only meant to hit the mayor of Chicago and it was a, a mob thing. But, uh, you know, in any case, it was awfully close to, 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 to killing Roosevelt. And um, as far as we can tell, you know, the, the would-be assassin or the assassin of Anton Chermak was, was um, mentally unstable and, and, and uh, you know, kind of... Um, unwell, and that was the only real reason for, for his uh, attack. But um, as you rightly suggested a few minutes ago, you know, this would have been 
really quite catastrophic, I think, uh, had he struck Roosevelt in firing him. Um, so the 20th Amendment, as we previously discussed, had been ratified during this period. The part of it that governed what would happen in a situation like this was in effect. So the 20th Amendment establishes for the first time that should the president-elect die, the vice president-elect will become president. Roosevelt's vice president-elect was John Garner of Texas, uh, you know, somebody who therefore was from a segregationist state. Not only that was from the more conservative wing of the Democratic Party, he was somebody who Roosevelt had put on the ticket specifically so that Roosevelt could win the votes of Texas and get the nomination in the first place. It was not somebody who was ideologically really consistent with much of the New Deal. He was somebody who was the favored candidate of William Randolph Hearst, who was a strong isolationist. Hearst, uh, if not the first person, then certainly the most prominent person to use the slogan, America First, had it on his mag uh, newspaper mastheads you know, from the time of the First World War. Uh, was very much opposed to Roosevelt's uh, anti-Nazi policies. And so had a Hearst-backed Southern segregationist become president uh, in 1933, you would have had a very different uh, flavor of New Deal coming out. That wouldn't, that's not to say there wouldn't have been any relief legislation. There would have been some, but it wouldn't have gained the momentum that it did. And uh, certainly there wouldn't have been the anti-Nazi elements of a Garner administration that there were of a Roosevelt administration. So as you say, it would have been quite consequential. And uh, we can only imagine the flavor of World War II being different. I mean, you know, you, um, you look at the Lend-Lease program and the support that FDR gave to Great Britain and ultimately commits the United States full force to Japan and, and Germany or fighting Germany and in, in uh, France and, and places like that. I mean, my goodness, it's hard to, it's hard to even think about that. Um, uh, just quickly, um, before we get to the ride to the Capitol, um, uh, what was it like behind the scenes in the weeks before the administration, the Hoover administration gives, uh, gives power over to FDR? Um, they do meet again, the two of them, but Hoover doesn't want to take this picture with him. Um, and uh, just give us the kind of sum up the end of this winter war before they have to get into the same car and ride to the Capitol together. Well, uh, immediately after the uh, assassination attempt, Hoover writes a long letter to Roosevelt that, as was Hoover's habit, he drafted very carefully, repeatedly in longhand, so carefully choosing his words. Um, it's about a nine-page letter, and uh, I, I'm not going to swear that it's one sentence, but it's about one sentence that's about the assassination attempt, and the rest of the letter is about telling Roosevelt that, again, he must repudiate the New Deal in order to stop the bank. And this remains the theme that Hoover hits for the last weeks of his administration, that the only way to stop the bank panic is for Roosevelt to swear off all of this radical legislation, and then people will suddenly become confident in the uh, banking system again. And conversely, Hoover therefore is refusing adamantly requests from bankers, from the Federal Reserve, from politicians, over and over and over again to take any presidential action. The leaders of the Federal Reserve briefed the president way back in 1932 saying he had the power under existing law to close the banks and in a case like this, specifically to prevent this kind of run on the banks. And Hoover refused to do it. Uh, eventually he would say, well, I'll do it if Roosevelt will go along with me which was a peculiar position because, of course, Roosevelt is at this point uh, a private citizen. Roosevelt let it be known that he was going to do it immediately on coming into office. So Hoover knew, you know, he had, he could just declare a bank holiday that would go to noon on March 4th and then let Roosevelt begin, you know. But he refused to do it. He didn't want to do it. Uh, readers of the book will learn that uh, Hoover privately, of course, took action to protect himself against the banking crisis by taking a, a rather large sum of cash out of the banks. Um, uh, but uh, he didn't want to do anything publicly to stop the banking crisis. So what or was I think, the again, political okay. I mean, Hoover was committed to the idea that it needed to work itself out. So what was the ride to the Capitol like? Uh, that's one of the great <laughs> things, that, you know, now they don't have to, 
they don't have to do it, but it, it had been a custom for, for generations and it would, it would be a custom after that until very recently, until a few weeks ago. Um, they got to get into the same car. I've seen the car, at least FDR's car, and it's fun to look at that. You can go to the museum in oh, yeah. upstate New York and look at right where he put his, his tuchus and sat there and, and, uh, and, and drove around wherever. But, but um, what was that ride to the Capitol like? Well, we should put in a plug for the both the Hoover Presidential Library in West Branch, Iowa, and the FDR Presidential Library in Hyde yeah. Park, New York, which have wonderful images of both these things. And as you say, Roosevelt's uh, cars, uh, including especially modified cars that he could drive with just his hands, right? Yeah. Um, you know, there's a famous New Yorker illustration of the ride, which I think accurately depicts it where Roosevelt is grinning, you know, uh, and waving at the crowd and Hoover is looking very dour and sulky. And I think that's, you know, that's fairly accurate. I mean, you know, Hoover was in the last minutes of having to give up a presidency that he didn't think he should have lost. And, uh, you know, maybe it's not particularly a, uh, a noble sentiment, but it's, I think it's a sentiment that perhaps we can be empathetic with. And uh, in the retrospect of the immediate past, we can say that Hoover was at least doing his job in terms of the uh, peaceful transfer of power. And so he did attend uh, Roosevelt's inauguration. Uh, but he leaves right away. He, he left bails. right away. <laughs> yeah. stunk. I got to go, guys. He, as soon as he was no longer president, boy, he was out uh, we do have the testimony of at least one uh, of the of the train staff who say that Hoover sort of you know wept as he uh, rode away from Washington, uh, which is fair enough. You know he was he was very uh, personally affected uh, by the episode. Of course, Roosevelt, you know, gave the inaugural address, which turns up in pretty much all history textbooks now, where he addresses specifically the banking crisis to say that you know. This is a panic created by fear itself, right? That's, and that's what we have to fear. And uh, I, think, I think it bears mentioning that Roosevelt didn't mean the only thing we had to fear is fear itself in sort of any sort of broad sense. He understood that there were, for example, Nazis to be afraid of. But I mean, you know, this was specifically with, with respect to the banking crisis, right? And, um, and of course, he div that was uh, uh, March 4th fell on a Saturday. So uh, Sunday was not officially a day of business. Roosevelt spent the day with former Hoover administration officials and Federal Reserve officials, you know, drafting uh, the bank holiday declaration, which was then immediately issued. Uh, it had the effect of closing the banks. They were closed for um, a few days before they began reopening on a rolling basis as soon as they could ascertain that they were safe. Uh, it also had the effect of taking the United States off the gold standard, which of course the United States never went back on the gold standard. People did, apparently, you know, this is the thing, it's worth pointing out, Hoover spent the whole uh, remainder, you know, the early months of 1933 saying this panic was occurring because people were terrified of Roosevelt's, uh, you know, rash New Deal actions. It's worth pointing out that as soon as Roosevelt took those rash New Deal actions, people apparently were uh, confident in the banking system again and brought their money back. So. Um what becomes of Herbert Hoover? I think this is an interesting story. There's a recent great book that describes he basically becomes an advocate for himself, an advocate for his own policies. He becomes a leader of conservative thought. Um, he lives a long time. He lives another 30 years. He lives longer than, than FDR does, that's for sure. Um, and he does whatever he can to argue that he was right all along. I think he lived in the Waldorf, if I'm not mistaken, in Manhattan. Not a bad place, not bad digs. Um, so what became of Herbert Hoover and what would he say about today's brand of conservatism? Well, yeah, I mean, you raise, you raise a very interesting point. We kind of know what happened with the New Deal and the war, so we can set that aside. And of course, we know that Roosevelt died in office in 1945, having been elected four times to the presidency, right? Um, and for, I don't know, let's say 30 to 40 years, the New Deal was kind of the prevailing framework for American politics, right? Um, Hoover left Washington intending to reside at his then home in, um, on the Stanford campus in Palo Alto, California, where he also had an office at what is now the Hoover Institution on the Stanford campus. Uh, he was there for a very short time before he decided that was to nowheresville for Herbert Hoover. And he eventually moved to New York, effectively, as you say. Um, 
because he wanted to be a leader of the Republican Party in the future. And initially, he believed he would be the nominee in 1936. When that became clear, that wasn't going to happen. He didn't give up, though. I mean, fair, uh, to be fair again to Herbert Hoover, he wanted to shape the Republican Party in his own image, even if he wasn't going to be its leader. He spent a lot of time talking to college Republican organizations. He spent a lot of time um, putting pressure on Republican Party leaders. And beginning almost immediately with Roosevelt's first term in office, he began giving speeches and then writing little books to describe what the Republican Party should be going forward, most notably in 1934, where he sort of enunciated the principles that he called the Ark of the Covenant for the Republican Party. And what he meant by that was commitment to opposition to the New Deal, right? Essentially, that was Ho Herbert Hoover's idea of how the Republican Party should be going forward. Remember, Hoover was, by adoption, a resident of the state of California. He had a great deal of influence on California Republicans, not least of them Richard Nixon, uh, who he admired for describing New Dealers as traitors, right? He wrote, uh, he wrote uh, to that effect. He had a great effect on Barry Goldwater, um, who in turn declared that he had learned his political philosophy from Herbert Hoover's anti-New Deal books. Right. In fact, uh, Hoover would die in 1964, shortly before the election where Goldwater got defeated. But he had by then had a profound influence on the direction of the Republican Party. And I mentioned this in the book that, you know, when he was asked how he had sort of shaped the argument so effectively, uh, and, you know, against so many political foes, he said, well, I outlived the bastards. And as, as you correctly point out, that's one of the ways to do it. Um, so the Republican Party today, which is not Eisenhower's Republican Party, right? It's, it's, it's a much more Hoover-esque party, you know, um, devoted to opposition to the New Deal uh, in the teeth of pretty much everything. And, um, you know, I, I think he would recognize it as very much uh, his creation. As his creation, interesting. What would he say about Trumpism? Deep Boy, that's breath. A tough he takes a deep breath. <laughs> well, you know, Hoover, Hoover's kind of like Nixon in that, you know, if you look at what he says publicly, it sounds very moderate and statesmanlike. It's only when you read what he says privately that you can see the rage, right? As we now know, after four years of having Donald Trump as president, there is no public-private distinction, right? It's, it's all on the surface. So I just think from a practical standpoint, Hoover would have felt that uh, uh, Donald Trump was not a very effective politician, right? That, that, you know, Hoover knew that there were things you said in private that you didn't say in public, if, if for no, none other than practical reasons, as Nixon also knew, right? Um, but I think in terms of the general politics, you know, like many prominent Republicans today, he would have felt that the Trump years were successful in achieving the kinds of ends he wanted to see achieved in American politics. Let's talk other winter wars. Um, what other winter wars have there been? Um, and I'm just going to throw out a couple. I, to be honest, I, I, I only can really think of Trump to Biden as being something similar. Um, but Carter to Ronald Reagan. I mean, Carter worked very hard to make sure that the hostages were released before or right as Ronald Reagan took office. Um, Clinton and Gore to George Bush, Obama to Trump, Trump to Biden. Um, are, are there any that stick out that echo the winter war between Hoover and FDR? Uh, there's nothing quite like it. I think that, I mean, if you want to go backwards, there's a very- Oh, we can go, uh, please. Yeah, please. In, uh, in 1860-61, you know, when secession yeah. takes place, that, that's a big one. But- um, That would be a winter war. And, and, and it's worth pointing out, you know, this is, a, this is one of those features that's unique to the United States Constitution, like the Electoral College or the Senate, that absolutely no other country looks at this and says, oh, that's a good idea, right? I mean, this is this is obviously a terrible idea to have this long- uh, period of transition, especially when it uh, is a handoff of power between two opposed parties. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a disaster and we shouldn't do it. I don't know what else to tell you about that. Well, so yeah, I, I was going to ask, I mean, because at one point, um, oh, but well, you know what? Let's go, let's I was go back point to out that. The one, yeah, go sorry. ahead. Yeah, go ahead. 
The one case where there's a, there's a really sort of interesting, awkward period, although the shoe is sort of on the other foot, is 68, 69, right? Um, and that's because the outgoing uh, Johnson, remember Lyndon Johnson said he wouldn't run again. The Democratic nominee is his vice president, Hubert Humphrey. And this by now, at, by this point, 68, you know, the, the Democratic Party has realized that the Vietnam War is a losing policy, right? And so Johnson is going to try to negotiate a peace. That's the reason he says he's not going to run again. And he's nearly successful in getting peace talks going, you know, in the latter part of the summer in 1968. And what we can now say with some certainty is that the Nixon campaign, uh, as it then was, put a wrench in the works, to use Richard Nixon's own words, to try to prevent these peace talks from getting off the ground because they thought it would favor, you know, Humphrey's candidacy. And, um, you know, Nixon sent messages to the South Vietnamese leadership saying, don't, don't engage in these talks, you'll get a better deal from us once we were in office. And, uh, you know, Johnson got wind of this. Um, he had J. Edgar Hoover, the head of the FBI, you know, tap some phones, got some recordings, uh, was able to play them for the Senate Majority Leader, Everett Dir Dirksen. You know, we have a recording then of Johnson talking to Dirksen, where Johnson says, this is treason. Dirksen says, I know, which is bad. You know, <laughs> so, so there's, a, there's this, uh, and then, so when Nixon wins the election, Johnson essentially lets him know, or has Herbert, uh, sorry, J. Edgar Hoover let him know that they know about this. Arguably, there's a straight line from that to Watergate, right? Because what Nixon knows at that point mm. is that there's record of him doing sort of treasonable stuff somewhere. He doesn't know how extensive these records are, right? He doesn't know where they are. Because in fact, Johnson takes his, uh, you know, uh, records of this episode and ships them off to Texas to be stashed in the Lyndon Johnson presidential library. So they're not to be found in the White House. And, uh, you know, you want to know why Nixon has people breaking in the Democratic Party headquarters to find out what they've got? Well, because he wants to know what uh, people have on Richard Nixon. We, should, we shouldn't omit to mention, by the way, that Herbert Hoover, Herbert Hoover, had the uh, Office of Naval Intelligence break in the Democratic Party headquarters during his administration to find out what they knew. So uh, this is, a, this is a, as I say, there's some resemblance between Hoover and Nixon on these kinds of uh, 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 scores. Lots of breaking in. Um, I, I wanna hone in on the, the, the length of the transition here. Um, it used to be, as we just, as we said early in the episode from no, early November to um, early March. Now it's from early November to mid January. Um, you're evidently saying it should be a heck of a lot shorter than that. Um, what would be the happy medium and, and why has the time narrowed over time and what should it be now? Well, you know, they, they made it shorter in 1932-33 with the adoption of the 20th Amendment in recognition of the fact that, as one political scientist wrote when he was analyzing, that the much, much mischief can be done by lame duck factions, right? Um, and this is also when they uh, move the swearing in of the Congress, the new Congress and stuff like that forward. Um, you know, right now, the kind of benchmarks where we have, as, as we now know nationally, which people don't generally keep track of, January 6th is an important date, right? Because of the uh, final ratification of the electoral college votes. I mean, that's kind of the sticking point is that we have the states individually ratifying their electoral college results in December and those being sent in to the National Archives and Congress, the new Congress meeting in January to certify them. I mean, that's, that's the only alleged reason for making it even this long. There was a 36 day fight, a legitimate one over votes in 2000. Right, right. There, there, there have been, I mean, you know, and, and again, Nixon in 1960 uh, brought a number of suits to challenge electoral college votes, um, you know, to see uh, it's about that, that. That was a very narrow election again. Um, you know, so, so, so you could say there, there could be some leeway, but, uh, you know, the, we've already seen, I think, that, that a couple of months is, is far too long. 
especially you know in the middle of a crisis, right? If things are ticking along fine, and uh, you know we have, but we had a very rough patch in 32, 33. We again in 2008, 9, and again of course uh, with the pandemic in 2020-21. And again, it's worth pointing out, you know, the decision voters made in 32 was for a new deal was for a different policy to approach the Great Depression. They didn't get what they voted for until March of 36 months, right? yeah. Right, and during that time, more people lost their jobs, more people lost their savings, more people lost their homes, people died, right? Given that in retrospect, we can say the recovery began immediately with the institution of New Deal policies in March of 1933, you know, that recovery was therefore available to begin some months earlier. And it would have been healthier for the country for it to happen. I think we could say the same thing in 2020-21, you know, that, that a speedier transition to a more effective policy of uh, vaccination and, you know, pandemic control would have saved lives. So it's very costly to have this long period. Dr. Eric Rauschway, author of Winter War, Hoover, Roosevelt, and the First Clash over the New Deal. Thanks so much for joining us. It's been my pleasure. Thank you. Certainly check out that book and his Twitter feed, which is at Roushway. His website is ericroushway.com. I do want to invite listeners to our Patreon page to ask for your support in keeping the show going. Go to patreon.com slash axelbankhistory. We're going to donate part of your contributions to a charity for children's literacy. And thank you for listening to Axelbank Reports, History, and Today, conversations with America's top nonfiction authors and why their books matter right now. Be sure to check us out on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Axelbank History. We update those with clips from the show, guest announcements, and book recommendations. We'll see you next time. Thanks. Thanks.